You are listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by Michelle Carr. Good morning. It's great to be here with you guys uh, to share something that the Lord has been writing on my heart in my own life for the last probably three and a half years. Um, I've been... Uh, as Robin said, I lived in South Florida for 15 years, and I moved to Charlotte last May. So I've been here at uh, QCC and in the Queen City in general for a little over a year. And uh, yeah, so more of my story is going to come as I talk, but we are going to jump right in today to uh, John 21. So if you guys want to pray with me real fast... Um, Fathers, ask that you would breathe on the teaching of your word today. Jesus, I ask that you would reveal yourself and your heart for us as your sons and daughters, as your friends, in a new way to every heart, that you would speak what our hearts need to hear so that we could grow more deeply into who you made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Robin actually preached a really great message two weeks ago on Peter. And so this uh, today is kind of a journey into the next steps of uh, Peter's life. So John 21, 1 through 14, we have kind of fast forwarded to the very end of the book here, <laughs> but it's a pivotal moment in Peter's life. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish for they were not far from shore about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there on, with some fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So in context here, the disciples are back in Galilee. It is post-resurrection of Jesus. It is pre-ascension and pre-Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has not come yet. And... I imagine that there's a whole lot going on in these guys' hearts. I think that we tend to look at the Bible 
often in a very hands-off sort of way. It's the power of story that connects our hearts to something. It's why we love music and songs. It's why we love movies and television and books, because someone tells a story and something in that story taps into a real emotion that we have felt and we are, we are changed and, and transformed by that story. I think a lot of times to our detriment, especially if we've grown up around church, we're very familiar with these stories of Jesus, of the disciples, of all the other people, but we look at them from a distance. We look at them as fables and tales and we don't actually always let them in into the deeper place and it's in knowing and and getting to know Peter or getting to know Jesus and their humanity in a deeper way that transforms us and connects our lives today to what was relevant back then in Jesus' time. So I want to take a few minutes to set up the context of this passage a little bit, maybe an ultra modern take. But I want to talk about the real events that have happened in their lives in the preceding, like, month or so. They have watched their close friend, Jesus, who they've walked with every day for for three years. They've watched him be arrested, be beaten, be brutally murdered. Uh, That in and of itself is an incredibly traumatic thing to walk out. In addition to that, one of their other friends, Judas, who they walked with also every day, is the one who set in motion the events that led to that happening. So they're dealing with that betrayal. And they've had to go into hiding because the the atmosphere is not super pleasant for them either. They're scared. They're afraid. Things are very heightened. And Peter, in particular is carrying the weight of the greatest failure of his life. He has been boldly declaring his great love for Jesus, and then he has found himself most likely filled with shame because he said a lot of things that he couldn't walk out. And when that rooster crows, imagine the weight of failure that falls on him. Imagine yourself and your moment of greatest failure and what that felt like and how long you carried that. (laughs) And then imagine that Jesus was the one who you personally betrayed. So Peter is carrying all around a lot (laughs) of junk on him. Um, They know that Jesus is alive. He's walking through walls and popping in here and there, but he's not with them. So they're missing the like daily presence of peace that Jesus carried and had that they had in their lives for three years. And he promised them a helper, but that helper hasn't arrived yet because Jesus hasn't ascended into heaven to release the Holy Spirit. So I think it's fair to say that the disciples, even as you read through them, through the Gospels, they didn't exactly fully grasp the things that Jesus was telling them. Like, they liked how they felt when they were with him. They believed him. They felt purpose in his presence. But they were still very much living in the context of the modern Jewish day, which was that their Messiah was going to be a political ruler. That's what they were imagining. And they were walking around as you see throughout the Gospels even, arguing about what positions they were going to have. So their their paradigm 
had been awakened, but it wasn't fully transformed to the message that Jesus was actually bringing. And so they were imagining their promises fulfilled in a very specific way. And then Jesus came, and in the span of, what, like three or four or five days, Jesus is murdered, crucified, buried, raised again, and everything they thought about life, everything they thought about how life was going to be, and their place in it has been blown to shreds. Like, they don't know what's going on. And in that place... (laughs) Think about the shock. Think about the doubt. Think about all of the questions that you begin to ask yourself in a place of trauma when your whole world is falling apart. All of us have been there in some form or fashion. If we've never been there that dramatically, I would venture to say that all of us at least once or twice in our lives will have a moment when everything fully falls apart. And in those moments, we are constantly grabbing on to what will bring us comfort we are looking for something safe we are looking for something that that we can hold on to that will help stabilize the shaking that has just happened and so the disciples in john 21 even though in luke the the lord has told them to stay in jerusalem and wait for the coming of, of the holy spirit they've actually gone back home they've gone back to galilee They've gone back to a familiar place, a familiar place that they're not entirely supposed to be at the moment, but it's a place where they're looking for comfort. They're looking for, for a, a vestige of something to hang on to, to remind them who they, who they are and what they're called to be. And it's a familiar place in scripture. Uh, Luke 5, 1 through 11 is when Jesus first met Peter uh, and called him to be a fisher of men. It says, one day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, which is the same, a different word for the lake of Galilee, the people were crowding around him, and they were listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. And then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And so they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they both began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners, And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore and they left everything and they followed him. So they have returned to the place where they first met Jesus. And you hear several similarities in the text. They're looking for fish. They're probably in a similar spot. They've been up all night. They can't find them. And Jesus is the one who interrupts the story both times. To put them in the right direction. Um, 
he even has mercy on them in the sense, because like I said before, they weren't exactly supposed to be there this time. But Jesus comes and he interrupts that day to show them not just where the fish are, which has its own symbolic meanings, but to say, hey, let's do this. Bring me the fish. And he's made them, he's made them dinner, make breakfast, I guess. He's feeding them. He's there to feed their souls. But Peter, John actually is the one who recognizes that it's, that it's Jesus first. Peter, for whatever reason, again, from the guilt and the shame and the weight of all of his carrying, Peter doesn't hear the voice of Jesus and recognize it. But as soon as he does understand that it's him, he's out of the boat and he's on the way to the shore because he knows that Jesus is what he needs in this moment. Um, 2015 for me and my community in Florida was a really bad year. You know, you have those years when you're like, let me just get to the end. Let me get to New Year's Eve. And then the calendar will turn and everything will magically be better because this year will be over. (laughs) That was uh, 2015 for me and all my friends. (laughs) And towards the end of 2015, through circumstance, which who knows how much was Jesus and how much was not, but circumstance had combined along with the leading of the Lord for me to say, it's time for me to walk away from the job that I had done for many years, the job that I honestly thought I would do for the rest of my life. But I, I quit with the lead, like believing that the wind, knowing that the wind of the Lord was behind me. And then two weeks later, I had a car accident and I shattered my right ankle, uh, two days before Christmas <laughs> and That led into 2016, which ended up being worse than the year that I was trying to get out of (laughs) in 2015. But nonetheless, (laughs) um, that accident took me out for a whole year. Crutches, casts, surgeries, no driving, no walking. uh, Pretty much all alone in my apartment for the better part (laughs) of 12 months um, by myself. It was as terrible as it sounds and probably worse. And in that year, the Lord completely dismantled everything that I had thought and believed about who he was, who I was, the world that I had imagined myself living in, what I was going to do with my life, who was going to do it with. Everything was just torn apart and continued along that road for another year and a half of trying to figure out what putting it back together looked like. So at the beginning of that journey, towards the beginning of 2016, before things had even gotten really as bad as uh, they ended up becoming, the Lord encountered me with one specific scripture from Hosea, chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. And it says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he is torn, but he will heal us. He is stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know. Let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to the earth. That's the New King James. In the NIV version, 
uh, verse two says he has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. And on the third day, he will restore us. So like I said, Jesus highlighted these verses to me at a moment of intense trauma in my life. And particularly verse three was what he uh, drove home. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. In that verse, there are two uh, specific Hebrew words that I want to highlight to you. Um, the first one is yada, which means to know. It's a very intimate word that's used throughout the Old Testament. Um, it's intimate knowledge. It's the same word that's used for uh, a man and a wife knowing each other. It's the difference between, yeah, I know Robin McMillan, he's my pastor, versus like, I know my best friend, and when I see my best friend talking to someone from across the room, I can tell by the expression on her face what's happening in that conversation. Like, that's yada kind of knowledge. It's not just, yeah, I know this person, they go to church with me. It's like like a deep heart understanding of who someone is. The other word uh, in this verse that is um, about pursuing... About pers- it's pursue. It is radaf. And that word means to run after, to chase after, follow or hunt. And so in the original text, what this verse, um, Hosea 6 through translates to is you will know him when you run after knowing him. That there in our pursuit of Jesus is an intimate knowledge that comes with it. Now, I want to say right off, clearly when this happened, running was not a thing that I was doing in any way. I couldn't even walk without crutches. (laughs) Also, I hate to run. Running is not fun. I know some of you probably think that running is enjoyable. I am not one of those people. (laughs) So when... When I hear a word from the Lord that says run after something, I'm just, in that moment, I'm like, really, Jesus? Like, I, I hate to run and I can't even run if I wanted to right now. So I say that to, to point out that this is not about striving. It's not about even an outward action. I'm talking about a posture of the heart, I'm talking about a pursuit. <laughs> Of Jesus that moves in his direction instead of away from him. And in Hosea, I won't go into the fullness of Hosea. Most of us are most familiar with it through the book Redeeming Love, but Hosea is a story of the continual rebellion of the people of Israel and God's continued attempts to bring them back, to love them and to draw them back into healing and restoration. So these words are specifically geared towards you will know me intimately when you run after me in the place of healing and restoration, in the place where your life has been torn to pieces, in the place where you've been wounded. When you run after knowledge of me, you will find it and you will receive the healing that you need and that you long for. And so if we jump back to John chapter 21... Peter is the like physical picture of these words. 
Peter is in desperate need of an intimate moment with Jesus. <laughs> and when he knows it's Jesus, he is out of that boat and he is on the way to the shore because he is running after <laughs> an encounter with God that will change him. He needs to know what Jesus wants to say to him in this moment. He is still, like all of the history that he has with the Lord, is not changed by this one failure that he had. He still is the same Jesus, sorry, the same Peter that in Matthew 16 when he was asked, who do you say I am? He said, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. All of that is not washed away and eliminated because of this one moment of failure in his life. And he is doing everything he can to get back to the one who can, who can make him better. I think it also stands in contrast to the story of Judas and Judas clearly is famous in all the world for being the greatest betrayer of all people in any way. <laughs> He's the one who, who sold Jesus out to the people who crucified him. And Judas, in Matthew 27, it says, when Jesus had betrayed him, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And ultimately, he was so overwhelmed with shame and guilt for what he had done that he threw the money back into the temple and he killed himself. Um, the thing is that in spite of the depth of, Ju of Judas's betrayal, Jesus's love and grace would have extended to forgive even him. Like that's the power of the cross, that there is not one thing that any human can do that is more powerful, powerful or more terrible than the power of the blood poured out on the cross. But Judas was so overwhelmed by shame that he ran away instead of towards. He couldn't, he couldn't come in the right direction. He, he was so taken by it that he had to go in the other direction. And I almost didn't bring up this point, but I did feel as I was preparing that there is someone who is listening to this and the enemy has lied to you. <laughs> And he has called you a Judas. And he has said that what you have done is such a betrayal that Jesus could never forgive you. And that you should really just kill yourself because you're as bad as Judas. And the enemy is a liar. <laughs> and Jesus wants you to know, whoever you are, that that's not true. That you have a destiny. <laughs> that you are loved by God. And that all you have to do is look in the right direction. You only have to take the step towards him instead of away from him. And let's break down the running thing a little more. Is that this is not a striving that I'm talking about where Jesus is moving in this direction. And I'm constantly chasing him and I'm never going to catch him because he is always three steps ahead of me. I'm talking about Jesus is in a fixed location. Jesus is standing right here and he is looking at you and he is waiting for you. And your choice is to turn towards him or to turn away from him. And that turning, it may be as bold as Peter jumping out of the boat and, and making his way there as quickly as possible. 
It may just be a stumble. It may be a crawl. It may be one step. It may be that enough trauma has happened that it's going to take some months and years before all the restoration happens. But it's about forward movement towards him in one direction, however slow it takes. There is no expectation from the Lord for you to move any faster than you feel capable of moving. Because he's standing right there and he's waiting for you. And at some point, he's going to continue moving towards you. Even if you turn and you move away, he's still going to move towards you. But but there's something profound in your heart movement towards him. He's not asking for much. He doesn't need it from you, but he wants you to know it because he loves you. It's his love for you that is drawing you in because he knows that knowing him is what's going to heal you. And that is what ends up happening in this encounter on the beach once Peter gets there. They sit. Jesus feeds them. I think it's interesting how it says that nobody asked him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Like, what was Jesus' resurrected form like? Like, Mary couldn't touch him when she first saw him after he came out of the tomb. So, like, he sounds the same, but he looks somewhat different. They know that it's him, but they kind of don't know that it's him. And this is totally a rabbit trail off my message. But I think that the more we ask questions like these about the text, the more insight the Lord can give us into who he is and what these people were walking out. And we can find ourselves as a part of a story in a deeper, more personal way that is more transformational for us. Um, So we get to the very famous passage of Peter's restoration in verse 15. And it says, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And (laughs) this is a passage. I've been in church since I was like a little child. So, (laughs) So it's a story I've heard for my whole life. And in my more adult life, it's a story that I've heard And as I have known Jesus better, I've listened to it over and over and kind of been like, I don't understand fully. I don't see Jesus' love for Peter in this back and forth questioning. Um, It seems a little harsh, Jesus. Like, why'd you have to ask him three whole times? I know there's like a, you know, a connection. He denied Jesus three times. We're redeeming the three times. But it always felt a little hollow to me. In regards to the heart of Jesus for Peter. What we lose in the English translations is that there are two different words for love that are at work here. 
And the first two times when Jesus asks him, Simon, do you love me? That word is the Greek agapeo or agape. It means to love dearly. It is deep love, sacrificial love, love that is a choice, love that is laying down your life for someone. Brian Simmons in the Passion Translation translates it to, uh, do you burn with love for me? Peter, all three times, responds with the word phileo, which is more of a friend love, something you have affection for, denotes personal attachment. Passion Translation says, you know that I have great affection for you. So the back and forth here is Jesus says, do you agape me? Peter says, you know I phileo you. Do you agape me? You know I phileo you. And then the third time, Jesus says, do you phileo me? And the third time, Peter is grieved and sad. And he says, yes, you know that I have great affection for you. And I had never fully grasped this until the last like two years of my life. I heard Corey Russell teach on it uh one thing 2016 and that planted a seed in me that has taken me on a journey <laughs> over the last two and a half years of going deeper into understanding why Jesus asked Peter these questions in this way. First of all, Jesus often teaches by asking. You see it in the gospels. God, the father does it as well. He asks Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? Now, all-knowing God obviously knows where they are. He's trying to help them identify something that they need to know for themselves. Jesus is functioning in the same way here. (laughs) He's trying to show Peter something that Peter needs to know. And it's easy to be told something and say, yeah, okay, I know that's true now. But the experiential knowledge of me having to answer a question and find the answer for myself gives me a deeper authority on that answer because I understand it. I've studied it. I've learned it. I've not just been told it. It's similar to this concept of knowing in that yada way. Like I have to experience someone to know them. I have to experience truth to really know it. It's why just telling someone to do this or don't do that doesn't work often because they need to understand why they should or shouldn't do it. So in this, in this dialogue, Jesus is asking Peter a question and it seemingly seems like he's reminding him of a great failure because as Robin talks about two weeks ago, Peter had a lot of pride about how much he loved the Lord. He had really taken to heart those things that Jesus had spoken over him. And so he was walking and I'm the rock. I am the one who is going to build the church. But there were things in him that needed to be tested. There were things in him that needed to be worked out in order for him to actually become the rock that would build the church. And so here's the thing, though. Jesus never had any doubt that that testing had to come. When Jesus called him and said, you're going to be a fisher of men, he was not unaware of the failures in Peter's character. When Jesus called him the rock, same thing. 
He was never unaware <laughs> that, that the journey of Peter's life was going to go as it did. Peter is the one who primarily disappointed himself in his failure. It's similar to, to watching a little kid be like, yeah, dad, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to move that big rock over there. I can do it. And as an adult, you're like, you are five years old and you are, I, I know that you're not going to pick up that rock and move it effectively. You, you can't do it. You're not strong enough. It's, it's a very similar, but, but in that, no one, no father is like, gosh, you're such a failure, son. You weren't capable of moving the rock. Like, a father knows what their child is capable of, and they are supporting them even in their failure, because as adults at this point, we know that failure is often what leads to success on the next side. Jesus, even more so, is loving Peter in this dialogue. And so as he asks him, as he says, Peter, do you agape me? He knows that Peter didn't have that love. And Peter admits to himself once, I have great affection for you. I love you, but I maybe didn't love you as much as I thought I did. Peter, do you agape me? You know that I have great affection for you. <laughs> but I maybe don't love you as much as I thought I did. And then in the third time as he switches and he says, Peter, do you phileo me? Peter's grief and his sadness comes <laughs> to a breaking point And he's like, I love you, Jesus. I have loved you as much as I had the capability to love you. And in that last dialogue, there is a transition and there's something in Jesus flipping to the other word that says, the phileo love is enough for me. That's all you had to give. All you had to give was all I ever wanted. I have no expectation of you loving me beyond your capacity to love me. There is nothing in us. There's nothing in our failure that has ever caused Jesus to be disappointed because the whole purpose of the cross was his awareness of our failures. He can't be disappointed by the things that we get wrong because he already took care of it and he took care of it knowing that it needed to be taken care of. And so the restoration of Peter's heart <laughs> comes as he understands that this is reality. Like this, this is what is truth. This becomes the transformational <laughs> experience of his life, even more than being called on the beach, even more than any of the years of walking with Jesus. This is the moment that actually equips him to live with agape love and to go forward and to receive the Holy Spirit in a couple of weeks from, a couple of days from there. And to go and to build the church and to be the apostle and to start this thing that we are a part of today. The thing that Peter had to come in contact with was the fact that when you've been forgiven much, you love much. That he 
in and of his own strength was not capable of doing anything, the things that Jesus had said he would do. In our own strength, we're going to fail. Even in our greatest and best and most mature moments in the Lord, there are still things that we believe about life that are not lined up with the kingdom. And we don't even know it. There's always going to be another layer for us to, to come into deeper knowledge of. And it is pivotally important for us to realize that moving towards Jesus and not away from him in those moments is where we find life. I uh, have lived this message out a lot in my life over the last few years. I have preached it a lot <laughs> to myself in the mirror. Um, I honestly, for a while, didn't know if I would ever preach it to anyone else but myself. Um, but it came down to two things. Like the turning point for me, and I think the turning point for, for all of us, the point that this message brings, brought me to, and could bring you to, is first I had to forgive myself. Because in the midst of the trauma, and in the midst of the swirling, and in the midst of all of the pain of my life falling apart, I thought very highly of myself and how willing I was to say yes to Jesus. And how willing I was to, at the drop of a hat, do whatever he asked me to do. And it took me a very long time <laughs> to say yes to walking away from my very familiar place where I had encountered Jesus for many, many years. To walk away from that home and to come here and make this a new home because this was the home that the Lord wanted me to have for this season. And I, I resisted him for so, so long. And when I, even when I finally said yes to it, I felt such shame because of how long I had resisted him. And it took a good year, probably, of being here and honestly wishing that I wasn't here because I still wanted to be. It took a year of, of being in this tension and not being able to receive the unconditional love of Jesus in my own weakness. And something happened, something partly supernatural, partly my choice, part like just the perfect swirl of, of both of those things coming together to be like, Jesus loves me and this is where I'm supposed to be. And all of that stuff led me to understanding some really hard truths about myself. But as he revealed those hard truths to me, they were revealed with such love and such compassion and such awareness that he had known them all along. And I was the only one who was not aware of them in our one-on-one -on -one equation. And nothing about him had changed. I was the one who wasn't believing him. And I had to forgive myself. And I think sometimes forgiving ourselves is one of the hardest things that we can do. Because we hold ourselves to very high standards, especially when it comes to how we should walk with Jesus. 
think the second piece of this is that when we come into this reality, it also helps us forgive others. Because in our places of pain, we hold ourselves to a very low standard and other people to a very high standard. It's human nature. It's what happens. But the reality is that most of the people around us who hurt us are actually doing the very best that they can to. They are functioning at the highest level of truth that they understand. And it is not, in general, their intention to hurt us with the things that they do. That's not to say that that applies to every single situation. Obviously, terrible and malicious, horrible, evil things happen to people. (laughs) But regardless, as we find restoration in Jesus, as we find healing and we let go (laughs) of our hatred for ourselves, we also find the grace and the ability to forgive other people who have hurt us, to be able to look at the ones around us who failed us in those moments of trauma and to release them back to Jesus, to offer them grace, to stop carrying the weight of other people's things done to us. And it's the twofold reality of that, forgiving myself and forgiving others is what actually transforms my great affection for Jesus into something that is burning love within me for the rest of my life. I feel like within that, we have an opportunity today to turn towards him, to run towards him. And so I want to just take this minute here as we close to just be quiet for a minute. I want you to, to close your eyes and to picture Jesus <laughs> And he's waiting. He's just looking. He's looking at you. Those eyes of fire that burn with love for you are looking at you. And he's inviting you to come. So I just want you to chat for a minute with him. About the thing that's been keeping you from coming. his word to you is that even in your weakness you are lovely to him (laughs) 
that he is acquainted <laughs> with all the things you feel. He was a real man <laughs> who walked on the earth and knows all the things that involve being human. And if he didn't experience it in his own day-to-day -day life, he felt it all on the cross. He felt the full weight of human emotion. So there is nothing that you can tell him that he cannot connect to. So just take the step, the one step that you're able to take today. However big it is or however small it is, doesn't really matter. Just take this last couple of moments and take the step. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.